Greetings and welcome to the Farcast with your hosts Alex Helmbrecht and Daniel Binker. Today we are joined by English Assistant Professor Dr. Kimberly Cox here at Shattern State. Uh, Kim has a little bit of an academic history. We'll talk about that, but I'll give it a brief rundown. Uh, She has a Bachelor of Arts in English from the University of California at Riverside, a graduate certificate in Women's and Gender Studies from Stony Brook University, and then a PhD in English with an emphasis on Victorian and 18th century literature from Stony Brook University. That is a bit of a mouthful, Kim, but (laughs) I certainly appreciate you joining us today. Um, I guess the first question is, you did your undergraduate studies in California, uh, which you said you're from Southern California, and then you earned your graduate degree in New York. So it makes sense you kind of wound up in the middle of, of the country here at Shattered State. basically everywhere. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> Every uh, region. Where did you grow up, and, and how, did your, how did your appreciation of, of English and studying English develop? So I grew up in Southern California. Um, The town is Monrovia, which is sandwiched in between Pasadena and Arcadia, the places that most people have actually heard of. Um, The town I grew up in, which probably I can't call it a town after living in Chadron, but was very much to me growing up. Um, It didn't even have a movie theater until I was in high school. Um, So everybody was really excited about that. Um, But yeah, it was just a tiny little town. Um, My dad actually worked in redevelopment. And so he was part of kind of bringing Monrovia onto the map in Southern California. Um, And as long as I can remember, like I've loved stories. Um, so from a really early age, I loved to read. Um, if it was an option between like reading and doing basically anything else, you would find me with like my nose pressed in whatever new fantasy novel had just come out. Um, I was the kid that went to like the releases of books at bookstores and stood in line to like get that next like new exciting you know chapter and whatever the series might have been. Um, But yeah, literally as long as I can remember. Um, My grandmother loves to tell this story about when when I was like four or five, she told me that I could have one bedtime story. So I went and I took the fattest book off of the (laughs) shelf. (laughs) That was like the collection of, you know, like Grimm's fairy tales or something. Oh, I was thinking you were going to say Ulysses. (laughs) Nope, nope. Didn't have that on my my bedroom shelf. That took me until my BA to get to. Um, But yeah, she was like, no, we'll read one story from it. Um, but yeah, I think I've just always loved stories and immersing myself in, in worlds and into characters. Um, film is fun because you can literally watch kind of how somebody else conceptualizes the story. But with books, you kind of get to envision the world for yourself. Yeah. Um, and I've always really appreciated that. Yeah, that's awesome. So it's more uh, your interest in English is, is more long. Uh, kind of the reading and, and the interpretation of of stories rather than writing them themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I'm in a I'm in a a program that has a great like creative writing minor. Um, we have a really strong literature major, and I think we do great things with our English education major as well. Um, I am firmly like a reading and writing about literature type of person. Um, I am that like nerd who loves, loves, loves critical writing um, because basically it's engaging with other people and kind of debating about what these stories that we all read and love are actually about. And they reflect so much about our own cultures. Um, so 
I primarily work on British literature, and I think one of the reasons I was drawn to the Victorian period is because there's something like out of the ordinary and fantastical about a lot of that, um, a lot of the literature of that period. Um, and for me, I, I enjoy the fantasy aspect and immersing myself in a world that I'm not familiar with, and that pushes me outside of my comfort zone. Um, so unquestionably, yes, I am happy to read creative writing, which is what I do for a living. Um, but I am not a creative writer by trade. Makes sense. Thank you. All right. Uh, so Kim, how long have you been here at Shadron State and how did you get into teaching? What made you want to teach? <laughs> so um, I this is my fifth year here, um, which is exciting, actually. Um, I did not want to teach when I started out. So <laughs> I am I am an introvert by nature. If you stepped into one of my classes, you would probably have no idea, or so my students tell me. Um, so the idea of getting a PhD in literature was ideal to me. I was like, yeah. wait, I can read books and I can write about them and sit in an office and talk to nobody. Um, and then my first week um, of my graduate studies, I was a TA for a Shakespeare class. And so so two days of the week, we would be in a large lecture course, and then Friday, we would break down into what were considered um, like individual recitation sections, where you would have graduate students that would teach them. So my first Friday of graduate school, I was 22, and I was put in front of a recitation section of about 30 people. Um, and I had to continue teaching a section of this Shakespeare play. And it was amazing. Um, I loved it. My students loved it and were engaged. And they went with me on all sorts of things. Midway through the semester, we literally pulled a desk up into the front of the classroom. I brought in my cousin's like foam swords and like fake crowns from different things. And we actually staged parts of the play to talk about um, things like what the literal height of different characters and their positioning on stage would mean um, in terms of the politics that the play was trying to get at. Um, and so I just loved it. And from then on out, I was like, ah, this is what I want to do. Um, and I still I still love it. Um, it's been five years of really enjoying it, which I think is one of the reasons why um, I'm at an institution that really values teaching. I get to work closely with the students and Oh, very good. I, I enjoy that. Do you still bring in the foam swords? Oh, I would hope so. <laughs> absolutely. Um, every iteration of Shakespeare now, because we have a class dedicated to it, and it's my class, so I get to run it. Um, we not only bring desks to the front of the classroom, but I have students in kind of groups of two or three stand on top of the desks as if they were performers. So we model it after the Globe Theater. The rest of the class has to kind of crowd up around the desks as they would the stage of the Globe Theater. And then I will actually bring in like a cabbage and tomatoes and we pass them around and hold them and talk about how heavy they actually are. Um, and they'll get a little lighter after they rot, but we use it as a way to talk about the actual stakes of performing um, during that period. That's great. Pretty what what, uh, what are a few of the, the Shakespeare plays that you you teach like that in class? Oh, so, so many. So um, there were four specific genres that Shakespeare plays were eventually divided into. So tragedies, comedies, um, romances, and history plays. And romances 
are not just about romance. They blend all of those genres. Um, so my rule for doing Shakespeare is those are the genres we're going to cover. Um, and I have a survey that I actually send to my students and they decide the place that we're going to read. Um, so we have read a variety of plays. They do not usually remain the same semester to semester. And because of that, I've actually read um, history plays that I think most students don't read in classes. So Henry VIII, um, and then I think it's Henry the Fourth, Part One. Um, it's the one about Joan of Arc, but there's so many different Henry plays that it gets messed up in my mind. Sometimes. <laughs> oh, that's a great way for the students to get engaged. Yeah. What are some of the Shakespeare plays that resonate well with the students? Or do you find there's patterns? Um, they actually really enjoyed Henry VIII. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was surprised by this because it's very different from what we see of Henry VIII in most like pop culture. So most of them are familiar with the Tudors, for mm-hmm. example. Um, very very different version. But we also watched the actual production of um of the play at the Globe Theater. So they record productions of plays that they've done. And that always changes their perspective of the play dramatically. And especially given the political bent um, and questions about like truth um, that that play encourages, that has been really, really interesting for them given like our contemporary political situation. And so that has engaged in like lively and rich debate about the period, but also about what might make Shakespeare continue to be relevant to us today. Fantastic. Uh, Kim, another one of your classes is about monsters and, and kind of defining them in various ways. How did that class come about? Because I think it has an interesting name. Uh, and then talk about some of the other classes you teach in addition to Brit Lit. Oh, okay. Um, so Monsters and Magic started as Wizards and Vampires. Um, so a first-year inquiry course that my colleagues, Dr. Elizabeth Ellington and Dr. Lee Miller, actually conceptualized and co-taught. Um, when he was here, my colleague Nathaniel Doherty and I taught an iteration of Wizards and Vampires. Um, and something that... Uh, all four of us kind of agreed on was that while it led to some really rich and interesting discussion, it was a little bit restrictive because it was focused so much on specific types of characters um, and characters that don't always go together either. Um, I think one of the interesting things that came of teaching wizards and vampires was that you don't often have the two in the same type of story. Um, And so that led to, I think, some rich discussion. Um, So after that, we decided to tweak it a little bit and to conceptualize it as monsters and magic. Um, The idea behind it as a first-year inquiry course being that we will inquire, like, what do we mean when we say monsters? What do we mean when we say magic? What is the relationship between um, these two terms? And we, at least when I've taught it, um, we've looked at literature um, and we've looked at film. And then, of course, like with Dungeons and Dragons or games like Dark Souls, you can't help but kind of bring video games into that. And I've had a couple of students who have done some interesting um, like final projects where they tackle video games. Um, So yeah, the idea behind that course is to inquire what we mean by these terms, because they come up quite a bit. Um, And especially in this day and age, what we mean by monster, I I think is really, really interesting. Um, Most of the types of creatures that once upon a time were classified as monsters now are like main characters in romance-based television series. So, you know, like even, even zombies now, like 
monsters? Do we empathize with them? How does warm bodies change the way we we talk about those types of creatures? Right. Um, so I think it's a rich place for students to consider, like, contemporary culture um, and also connect it with, like, a larger pop culture history. Well, and then... It- and I don't know much about the course, but does it also include kind of the things that I guess would, would exist in the real world, a monster in the real world as opposed to fantasy or mythical? Inevitably, we end up there. Um, so it's a great question. We we definitely always end up there. Um, the last time I did the course, so the film version of the class, um, I usually well, we do a series of group exercises through which students ultimately decide like what films we're going to look at as we talk about monsters and magic. Um, so topics that have come up, for example, have been things like superheroes or um, children's movies. Um, the last iteration, my students were actually really interested in horror. Um, and so we actually looked at um, a series of horror films um, from some of the original like slasher films to kind of more contemporarily well contemporary and self-conscious films like um, Joss Whedon's Cabin in the Woods to talk about like movie magic um, but also explore like whether or not we would consider the killers in these movies monsters Mm -hmm. Um, and does that change based on whether or not the killer is somebody that we would identify as human versus you know nightmare like Freddy Krueger and so that leads to some I think really rich and interesting discussion as well about what we mean when we use a term like human Um, and usually there's a binary construction that's happening um, and a way to kind of distinguish or privilege or usually create a hierarchy between one type of person and another Um, so we get there yeah 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 I just was I was thinking and and Daniel might like this. Um, there's a, a character in the Rick and Morty show, yes. Scary Terry. And yes, when you yes. said Freddy Krueger, it made me think of that. And Perfect. I think there's something in the episode, I won't get the quote right, but um, where Scary Terry just does that because he's supposed to do that. That's his job. Yeah, it's, a, it's a function of what he does. He has a and wife so. and a child yeah. at home. He is just trying to provide for them. Um, yeah, that's a great episode where like he repeats, you can run, but you can't hide. And they're like, what if we try hiding? Like maybe. And then he um, can't find them. And then he can't find them. It's perfect. Uh, but yeah, I mean, right. How I think one of the things that we've seen recently um, is especially within like scholarly criticism, people starting to ask questions about how do we how do we create these like firm boundaries between something that we would identify as a monster and something that we would mm-hmm. identify as a human. Um, and unfortunately, like historically speaking, <laughs> like you had characters like Dracula who were monstrous primarily because they weren't white and British. Um, and that leads us into, I think, a very interesting history. And you see the way, like, things like Rick and Morty pick up those topics um, and play with them, but as a way to get us to think about them and ask those types of questions. That is interesting. Yeah. I would love to to have Rick and Morty in one of those classes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's see here. Uh, Let's talk about STD, Sigma Tau Delta, which (laughs) has been revitalized under your sponsorship. Yes. Uh, 
So tell us a little bit about this group. What what do they do? Um, so Sigma Tau Delta is our campus chapter of a National English Honor Society. Um, we are the Sigma Beta chapter of Sigma Tau Delta. And I will say at the international convention held annually, there is a lot of mileage gotten out of the fact that the acronym for this particular club <laughs> is STD. Um, I've learned over the years that I have to be very careful when typing up emails because it is so easy to just abbreviate. Oh, yeah. It takes a while to yeah. type out the whole thing, um, but it can lead to some fun and exciting mix-ups. Or if somebody unfamiliar were reading the email, they'd be like, what? What are you? Um, so our chapter has actually been in existence for 90 years. Um, we Not got bad. our like 90-year plaque this year, which was really exciting. Um, we When I got here... God, five years ago now, um, I worked with Dr. Stephen Coughlin um, to kind of get things up and running again. Um, at that point in time, 10th Street Miscellany, our campus literary journal, kind of blended with Sigma Tau Delta. Um, and then I kind of worked with students to really get it up and running. Um, my colleague, Dr. Mary Clay Jones, took over it this year, um, which is a nice little bit of a break. I can go and attend things as a participant instead of having yeah. to organize them, which is always lovely. Um, but yeah, they hold open mic nights, um, usually once a month throughout the school year, where people can come and share what they're working on, whether it's a actual creative piece that they've written, um, a performance that they'd like to do. We've had students who have shared art projects, which has been great. And we have students who just read selections from their favorite literature. Um, sometimes I'll read like sections from stuff we might be reading in class um, just because it's fun. Um, so that's a really great space. There's always pizza and pink lemonade, which I know college students appreciate. Oh, yeah. um, so dinner and a show. Um, <laughs> but we've also done things like our Harry Potter extravaganza, which was really well attended. Um, it was kind of part fundraiser, part community service. Um, so we had Harry Potter themed um, goods for sale, but we also had Harry Potter themed activities. We asked um, anybody who attended to bring something to donate to Doves, um, our local chapter, which um, is an organization that supports victims of domestic abuse, um, and that we had a great turnout for, um, and a surprising number of donations, which everybody was really pleased about. And Pretty then we good. screened um, the third Harry Potter film for just local community members, and so we had a lot of kids yeah. who came to watch it, which was really nice. Is that the best um, of the Harry Potter films? Oh, it depends on who you <laughs> talk to. I'm not a Harry Potter film fan. Um, my, my students believed that it was. Um, it was probably my favorite book, and so maybe the film that I hate the most. And what, what, oh, yeah. what, what is it? Is it the... Um, it is The Prisoner of Azkaban. Okay. Yeah, so I was I was just not a fan of some of the stylized choices. But, you know, they inevitably have to cut parts of the story for movies. Sure, yeah. um, and it's a tough one. <laughs> Dr. Dean Tucker and I debate this all the time. He believes that an adaptation stands... On its own. Um, I've read his article and think that he makes some very, very good points. So he's our um, our film studies teacher, for those who are not familiar. Um, however, we have not yet come to a, like, 
conclusion on why, if it's an adaptation that stands on its own, it needs to name itself after the book. Um, oh, that's a good I point. I feel like that yeah. that mm. obligates it to it in some way. But we have we have some fun some fun debates. Call it this. like Larry Potter. Oh, or there something. you go. Or just something <laughs> or else, right? Potter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> scary Terry Potter. Well, I got, I I got asked then um, <laughs> of uh, of the Harry Potter movies, which movies, which would be the least weakest in your opinion? Oh, <laughs> I stopped watching them after six, um, so I'm not really I'm not really sure. Um, maybe the second one. I, I would I would defer to people who like them. Well, I, th- <laughs> I, I think this kind of lends itself to a more broad question. Yeah. Um, obviously, you're well read. Is there a good movie based on a book that yes. you love? Okay. Okay. All right. I can't answer this question. I have thought long and hard about this. I will give you two examples. Um, I would say that the film version of the original Jurassic Park stands up to the novel. Um, it is very different from the novel, but in the novel, everyone is horrible. Um, I do not think that I was sad when anybody died, which interestingly works for a book. Um, and I think because the the aspects of the novel that you're engaging with are, are things a little different from what you're engaging with when you're watching a film, which is largely going to be character driven because mm-hmm. you're watching the performers. Um, so I think they made some very smart choices in terms of how they changed it so that you could actually empathize with and care about the characters and which ones survived. Um, so that one... Well, and they couldn't totally blow the with. island up at the end. Sorry, spoiler alert. Spo- they couldn't. <laughs> they couldn't. After, after 25 years, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, the embargo has been lifted. Oh, don't yeah. get me started on, this, sequels, on the newer so. ones. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ooh, the new ones some are of bad. those were tough. No, that is an interesting point. I think in terms of Dr. Grant being a fairly neutral character in the book, but then they give him an arc from not liking kids to liking them at the yeah. end. That well, that was a good addition. Even the grandfather in the original novel was horrible. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, he, he was, he, and, I mean, spoiler alert, he dies, um, but <laughs> not sad that he dies because you just didn't feel any type of emotional connection yeah. to him at all. And I think one of the interesting things about the original novel is that almost all of the characters kind of struggled with with some character trait that made them kind of unlikable, but that also kind of made it okay when they made their exit and was also sure. kind of the fatal flaw that caused that exit. Um, yeah. So I think the film made some really good changes. Um, the other one that I felt that way about was um, Neil Gaiman's oh, Stardust. Um, the novel was good, but I think, again, like some of the changes that they made to the film were were fun and enhanced what was happening in the novel, um, where again, like the two leading characters in that were just kind of weirdly selfish and self-interested um, in a way that works in the novel, but wouldn't work so well in the film. Hmm. All right. Well, there's two of them. So <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> there I will you go. say, they Alex, exist. <laughs> uh, what we just saw the other night, uh, Doctor Sleep. I thought that was a pretty good adaptation uh, from the novel, even taking into account. Uh, some of the Kubrick film, that, right. that being a sequel to The Shining and, and pulling that together. I I thought they balanced things pretty well there. Mm-hmm. I guess time will tell. That's, that's <laughs> having seen it just a week ago, you know, it's easy to form quick opinions. I'm but. interested. I was telling Alex before this that because I just subscribed to Netflix and Hulu and don't really have television, I no longer 
know what's coming out in film. Right. It's just like the same preview that Hulu decides to yeah. show me over and over again. So I maybe know one out of every like 20 movies that's coming out. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to see that one. I'm, I'm trying to think the, the one of the more recent books that I've read and I didn't really care for the movie was Ready Player One. But Oh, I've heard I, that. I liked the book a lot. Um, it, I mean, it's like candy. It's just straight sugar. It's so easy to read. <laughs> um, but uh, the book was... I, I felt like uh, the, the movie just, I don't know, it just wasn't there. It didn't line up. And there's a, there's other criticism. We don't need to get into it now. But, um, yeah, I, I think the the batting average or the, the success rate of movies or books that turn into movies being uh, truthful or faithful adaptations is probably pretty low. Correct. But then we have to ask, right, like, why why do they still make them? Um, and so I think it says something really interesting about consumerism, right? We will go and watch that. Oh, yeah. The promise that oh, yeah, maybe yeah. we'll get what we're well, looking it's a, for. Well, it's a known brand. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, those uh, that what that most recent Harry Potter universe film was bad, <laughs> and, but it made millions of dollars. because that it, it did. Yeah, I kind of get Harry this, Potter on it. I get this completionist thing where you said you stopped watching the Harry <laughs> Potter movies after the and I... Even though they were getting weaker in my mind, I thought, well, I still got to see these things. I got to see it through. Yeah. <laughs> it's when it becomes an event. It's, yeah. a, it's a cultural touch point. I tend to be that way more with books than I am with television or film. Um, I will try and stick with it, especially things that I know are going to be popular and kind of important, um, especially as a educator or somebody who's dealing with and interacting sure. with students. Um, but sometimes I get to a place where I'm like, nope, can't do it. Um, but even then, it leads to some fun conversations. And I always I always tell my students, I'm like, be very careful what you ask me. I will, I will give you my honest answer. Um, but if I ruin something for you because you've asked, I am yeah. not going to apologize <laughs> for it. It just means that you're thinking about it in a way that you weren't before. Um, yeah, great way to put that. Yeah. So Kim, a research interest... Uh, excuse me, a research interest of yours deals with hands and tactility in British literature. And yes, yes I had to write that down before <laughs> I wrote it. Uh, what is that? And how did you discover your interest in that topic in the first place? Excellent question, Alex. Um, all right. So the simplest way to explain it is we, so we, we touch things all the time, right? Um, we're, we're tactile creatures um, for the most part. Um, we often touch things on a daily basis with our hands and I think probably don't give it a second thought. Um, during the Victorian period, there were many, many rules that legislated um, how you were supposed to engage with things tactily is the simplest way I can put it. Um, so for example, if you were a lady during the period, it was very important that if you were going out in public that you should wear gloves of some sort, um, both because life during the Victorian period was incredibly like dusty, dirty, disgusting, um, but also as a way to kind of inhibit certain types of reactions. Um, in this day and age, like, I think the things that my students often talk about with, like, television, especially things like HBO, is, like, sex and violence, right? Like, that's what we're known for. Um, in Victorian literature, they didn't exist in those sorts of ways. Um, so what my research focuses on is the way that characters touch each other in Victorian novels. Um, and I look at that as a way to explore what those touches might reveal about relationships um, that we weren't aware of or thinking about before. Um, so a gentle caress between two characters, I read as something that suggests um, 
a significance about the nature of their intimacy and their relationship. Whereas um, if a female character is like standing in the middle of a room and a man comes up and grabs her hand without her first having offered it, and it goes into specific detail about the fact that it was like painful, then that suggests like some type of violation has occurred um, in a way that would be threatening to readers during that period. Um, so my research focuses on literature kind of from about 1740 to around 1900. So looking at the 18th and the 19th centuries, specifically in England, um, and I explore like how touch appears in novels in particular, um, but also how it evolves across those periods. Um, so in 18th century literature, like hands are grabbed all over the place, um, and it's always a woman's hand that's being grabbed and it's always being grabbed by a man and it is always very scary. Um, yet when you look at like conduct manuals and etiquette books during the period, says nothing about touch, how you're supposed to appropriately engage, whether or not you're supposed to wear gloves. Um, the most one conduct manual says for men is about how to appropriately wash your hands to make sure that like your your hands actual physical properties match their spiritual properties um <laughs> illustrate their morality um so very significant for upper classes to make sure to distinguish themselves from lower social orders um by the time you get to like the 18 30s, 1840s in England, there are etiquette books that dedicate chapters to appropriate types of handshakes. Um, and I was very surprised the first time I read it, how many different types of handshakes there are. Um, from uh. friendly handshakes, um, to like disdainful handshakes, um, to um, like romantic handshakes um, and that's not even counting chapters that talk about like gloves and various types of gloves and where you're supposed to wear them and how you're supposed to wear them. Um, so I explore kind of why that shift is um, and what novels suggest about the significance of this rise in etiquette. Um, and during the Victorian period, one of the one of the things that I suggest is that there is an erotic quality to touch, um, especially between like older characters. Um, and so it's one of the ways that Victorian literature encodes um, kind of sexual relationships, advances, um, as well as social mores um, and power dynamics between characters. That sounds interesting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess my first question is, with with the authors who are writing these these literary works, are do you find or, or do you know, are these decisions that they are purposefully making to describe that? Or is that, are they saying, or is it just... I'm grabbing your hand because there's a runaway stagecoach coming away. Or so. so, I mean, it, it, it would depend on the type of situation, right? Um, grabbing a hand for a runaway stagecoach is very, very different than, like, somebody running up. Well, specific example in Evelina, um, like, a police officer running up to, like, Evelina on the street, grabbing her hand and being like, you are such a beautiful creature, Um while she's clearly terrified. Wow. Um, so what I suggest is that I think there is something happening in the culture of the time. Um, 
we, I think our social mores are very different. What it means to engage in polite society for us is very different. So we probably don't give a lot of thought um, to like how frequently we're in engaging in certain types of touch. That said, I would say that we are still kind of fairly careful about when and how we touch. Oh, sure. Um, for like interviews and stuff, people are still taught how to like shake a hand to suggest something about like your character and reliability yeah. and friendliness. Yeah. Firm, um, yeah. How to make eye contact firm but not too firm right like no squeezing um we've all seen those like those movies or television series where you have like two men that like squeeze each other's hands too hard as a way to like silently yeah. communicate something um so i think that these types of things still come up um we're just not as cognizant of them anymore because like everything is not organized according to a strict kind of code of conduct. So I think that whether, well, I do think that there's a deliberate way in which these specific scenes were placed in text, whether or not it's like an author being very specific and deliberate about it versus being a representation of just what was in the air at the time. It's the latter that I'm interested in. Okay. Um, why is it that this appears so much and what does it suggest about how people viewed this type of touching during this particular historical moment? And for our viewers and listeners at home, are there any examples of high fives? Oh, Oh. Maybe I could do a thesis on that. Looking for <laughs> high fives. Five That's what I can think of, the actually. The history of the high five. The history of the high five would be, I'm sure, something that people would be interested <laughs> in. Um, it's yeah. probably on Reddit somewhere. <laughs> I'm just thinking, uh, I think day, George right? Carlin did a treatise on that. Oh, did he? Oh, he didn't like him. <laughs> yeah. Well, when he said, you know, when you shake at a, a job interview, wouldn't it be funny if you just gave high fives? High fives. <laughs> oh, 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 the Daily Show, they do the fist bumps. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, the fist bumps, good. Yeah. Oh, John Oliver also, I think on one of his earliest um, – episodes like did a skit that was specifically about handshaking um and his like discomfort and anxiety with like how to engage in like a cool handshake mm. um and what that suggests about like the divide between his generation and younger generations um so there like are just interesting ways in which these types of anxieties come up yeah um but yeah i mean right down to a no novel like dracula he's described as having cold hands that make like Jonathan one of the characters shudder when like he's accidentally touched a little bit um kind of talon claw like fingers um and hairs in the center of his palm right and all of those things are very like specific and characteristic of that time period right down to there being a well-known kind of treatise during the period that talks about how excessive masturbation will lead to like growing hairs in the center of the palm mm -hmm. blindness and then ultimately death um and you see that invoked in this monster like character right um so not just his kind of origins in transylvania but also like his sexuality as being part of what causes him to be this monstrous figure ah, very interesting so uh well here we go getting back to harry potter so you taught <laughs> harry potter before what do students take from harry potter or if we want to broaden that to you know popular literature being brought into the classroom yeah. that kind of thing okay i advocate popular literature being brought right into the classroom uh, <laughs> wholeheartedly 
Um, so that was actually a very interesting experience. Um, it had been a while since I had reread the series, and I found it really hard to get through <laughs> this last time that I taught it. Um, it is really really spot on in terms of age with the characters and so some of the very like teenage problems or things that have yeah. very simple solutions I think it was interesting in that regard for both myself and my students who are now in college to revisit it and be like why are they freaking out about this or why aren't they just doing this um I think other takeaways like had to do with individual students. Um, so a couple of things that came up was bullying, as it appears in these novels. Um, students had a lot to say about Harry and his father, um, about Professor Snape. Um, I had a lot of students who were English ed, and so kind of questions came up about styles of teaching um, and what it means that professors are behaving a specific way to students. Um, we also talked a bit about like monsters and how they appear in these novels. Um, when we read the second one, um, the character of Aragog, so the giant kind of spider. We compared the description of that character to the description of Shelob in the second of the Lord of the Rings novels um, and looked at like the real difference between how they're described um, and like the, the thematic significance that can be taken away. Um, so Aragog is just kind of described as like this like graying old blind like large spider who's kind of scary um and shelob is kind of described as being a creature that literally like sucks light in around yeah. her so that she emanates darkness right? i remember it seems like it was a much more grotesque description horribly grotesque. um and it's interesting to have a conversation with students about like what those types of differences suggest and what we take away yeah. from reading it. Um, gender politics came up a bit. Um, race politics came up a bit. Um, but it was nice because we got to look at the entirety of the series. Um, given that there was a, a kind of literary focus since we were reading the series of novels, they also had a lot to say about the final book with the, um, the, the Deathly Hollows um, and how those kind of came together, which they felt was not great. Um, but, you know, like they are a good series, I think, for especially like when students are maybe freshmen or sophomores, being able to grasp on to something that is familiar, but to delve into it a little bit more deeply than they're used to thinking about it. Yeah. Not just like what's happening in the novel, but what's significant about what's happening in the novel. Um, what do each of the various challenges that the kids have to face in the first novel reveal about the professors um, who are protecting them? What do they reveal about what's actually valued about wizards um, or education? Um, What's significance about the way some of them are overcome, right? Um, what's the role of Quidditch and sports in the series? Um, I think there are just lots of things that are, are quite relevant to students, especially sure. especially at this particular moment in their lives. What are some of the other popular books that you teach? Oh, good question. Um, okay, it kind of depends... <laughs> 
It depends on the classes that are up on rotation. I think there are many that I would like to teach, um, but not always a ton that I have the opportunity to teach. Um, I would consider Dracula, for example, to be a popular novel at the period of time that it came out. Um, it wasn't always something that, for example, was included on college syllabi at a certain point in time. Um, we're using that as kind of the foundational book in theory and practice of literary criticism, where we're looking at different schools of theory and at how critics actually apply that to the reading of the novel. Um, in History of Britlet B, one of the novels that we read that I would consider to be a popular text, although maybe many of my students would not, um, is The Stone Gods by Jeanette Winterson, um, which students I find always really enjoy, but also really um, sparks some engaged discussion is maybe the, the best way to explain it, um, and some really thoughtful debate. Um, yeah, and then in freshman composition courses, I think the assignment that I enjoy the most is I, I consider literacy and writing to be super interconnected. Um, so for those courses, I often organize mine around pleasure reading, where within the first probably three or four weeks of the semester, I let them determine the book that they're going to read. Um, and then that's the book that we're going to be reading and researching and writing about throughout the semester as we build skills that kind of move from things like summary to actual like analysis and argumentation. Um, and there I have had students that have read everything from like 50 shades of gray to a chemistry textbook that they were <laughs> really interested in. Um, and that was great. Actually, he decided um, to do kind of a, a series of radio shows about that chemistry textbook, which was terrific. Um, yeah. And my student who read 50 shades of Gray had a lot to say about like how frustrating that novel actually was to get through. Um, so I think that there is a value in, I think there's a value in popular literature partially because it instills like a, a love of reading. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there's also a value in the classics and I definitely teach those in my classes, especially Things like survey courses where you kind of can't get away from those types of texts. Um, but I think allowing students to discover what is like fun and contemporary about those texts right now um, is also important. Mm -hmm. And I think that it also lends itself to talking more widely about how things that are popular can still have an effect on culture um, and representation. Um, and so, you know, like we might read something like Harry Potter, but the next time they're watching their favorite television series, they might start thinking about it in a way that they didn't before. Oh, yeah. um, and I think that that type of engagement where you're not just kind of passively receiving something, but actively engaging with it is really important. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, so we talked a little bit already about uh, Victorian literature and, and culture. So I'm going to jump to it. another question, kind of in the same vein about the, uh, courses that you've taught. Uh, something near and dear to me and Daniel's heart is copy, edit yeah. copy yes. editing. And so um, talk a little bit about the differences between writing and editing uh, for, for everyone at home. And how do your students benefit from that? Because oh, one thing right. I think there's tons of content. Not enough editors. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think that that 
actually really nails it. Um, When you're writing, you're producing, right? You're producing content. Um, When you're editing, your job is to make content as easily digestible for readers as possible. Um, Our mantra when I taught this copy editing class was do no harm, Mm. right? Um, You should not be going at something with a red pen such that you start introducing problems where there aren't any. Your job is to help that author express their point as clearly um, and as legibly for readers as possible. So to make that reading experience as positive as possible. Uh, Because, you know, like we've all been there. When you write something, something you're in your own head you know what you're trying to say um and then at a certain point like you'll fill in the blanks if they're not there right um it's one of the reasons that i always advocate reading something out loud to yourself slowly um because otherwise it's very easy to just add in a the where it's missing or to like jump over a typo so getting a second set of eyes on something is really beneficial um as far as like what our students gain from it, I think that there are a variety of things, and this is a class that I would hugely advocate. Um, in standard composition courses, we t- we have peer review. Um, we talk about things like editing your own work, um, but it's really hard to learn all of the skills associated with editing while you're also learning skills associated with the production of a text. Um, And so one of the values of copy editing, when I did it, um, it was when I was co-managing editor for Victorian Literature and Culture under the editors at that point in time, John Maynard and Adrian Munich, who are big names in Victorian studies. Um, And so they were fine with my running a course on copy editing where I actually gave six of our students um, accepted articles for publication in VLC, which is an academic journal, Victorian literature and culture. Um, And so we spent the semester talking about editing. So addressing things like diction, grammar, punctuation, um, formatting, research, where they had to not only like check every quotation that was in the text, but also read through for clarity and for formatting and to communicate the suggestions that they ultimately made for revision to the actual authors who wrote these texts. Um, So by the end of the semester, like those copy edited articles were actually then published in VLC. So our students' names actually appear in that issue, which gave them practical life experience. Um, But I will tell you that I have never had students that were so interested in things like grammar and punctuation and word choice. Um, We had like very like lively but excited discussions about is this comma right? Do we need this comma here? How do we how do we tell? Um, How do we determine that? Right. Um, This author uses this but there's no, there's no referent. Um, is that okay? Or do we need to add a referent for clarity? Um, this sentence is grammatically correct, but it's five lines. <laughs> um, is there a way for the author to break this down so it's a more digestible chunk and thus easier to read? Um, and then with all of that, how do you communicate that to an author who has put like their blood, sweat, yeah. and tears into the production of this paper? Because we all get very attached to our writing, right? Um, so what is the kind of rhetorical strategy you're going to use to not be like, this is wrong, but I think that this would make it clearer for this reason? Um, So I think 
what I found with that group of students is that they became much stronger writers thereafter. Um, so I had many of them in subsequent classes and I was able to actually see the difference between oh, yeah. the writing that they produced before and the writing that they produced after. And I think part of that was because they knew what to look for and knowing what to look for and having that experience of actually editing something with that type of focus, you're not going to be able to help but think about yourself as a writer and what you're trying to communicate to readers in a way that you probably didn't before. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, I totally advocate copy editing. If I could, if I could get like another copy editing class going, I would absolutely do it. Um, because I, I think really it's too much to expect students to produce content and to copy edit in one semester. I think the types of concepts that we're working on are more easy to digest if you're just focusing on one because then that's what you're dedicating your time and energy to. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's true enough. And it's one of those jobs that um, you don't get much fanfare for it, uh, but if you do it right, then no one knows you exist. Yeah. So it's really important. And that's the thing, right? Yeah. Like, with copy editing, no one should know you exist. Your job is to help that author's voice shine. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's, if there's anybody on campus who wants to pair up, who has stuff that needs to be copy edited, I would be happy to, to work with students in a class to do that. Oh, great. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a very valuable skill. And professionally speaking, um, <laughs> people need copy editors. Um, people don't just need writers. They need people who can edit. And there are so many different types of job opportunities out there from like grant writer to copy editor to um, editor more generally where you're not just producing text, but looking at how you're putting various types of text together, whether they're online or in print. Um, so it's a great skill to have. So let's shift gears and uh, talk about games. Ooh. You've described yourself as a gamer. What yes. What are your favorite games? Once upon a time. <laughs> um, I don't have as much time now, but once upon a time. Um, growing up, oh, I was, I was, okay. Growing up, it was like Sonic and Donkey Kong and every possible version of Mario that I could get my hands on. Um, I even remember like we were able to get a hold of an old school Atari at one point. And so some of the games on that were amazing. Um, as I got older and they came out with like more exciting forms of video games, <laughs> um, specifically 3D spaces, Once Upon a Time, all 2D, which was still quite fun. Yeah. Um, things like Zelda I really enjoyed. And then, um, oh, like Dark Souls, um, played Uncharted for a while, um, Warcraft for a while. It's hard to... It's hard to kind of find the time to stick with something, though. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, especially with all the, uh, the all the courses that you teach and all your various <laughs> other responsibilities. Yeah. So yes. the fact that you could pull a few of those names out of your hat. Occasionally, <laughs> you know, and I did have the uh, – I, I really enjoyed it. I think at least from the course evaluations, some of my students did too. Um, but I had the opportunity to teach technical writing last semester, um, and that was what we organized it around. Um, all of the students had to conceptualize and propose um, their own version of either a video game or a board game. Oh, cool. Um, using an actual like the document 
is called a 10-pager, but using the formal structure of that technical document for that specific profession. Um, and so it allowed us like a lot of space for talking about like concision and clarity um, in writing, which was good. Um, it also gave us that opportunity to explore various like varied types of professional documents, such as memos, like update me with your progress, um, and research reports, like how are you going to figure out what game what game you should create, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how are you going to make sure that you have the background right? How are you going to, like, sell this to a company and show that there's an actual need for it? Um, and one of the things we were able to do was roll in, like, a large television and actually take a look at several different types of video games. Um, so what's the difference between children's games and how they're structured versus narrative-driven games versus, like, your standard kind of, like, killing fare? Um, and so that, I think, created some really interesting space um, for conversation within the classroom. Um, and it really got things going. And one class that got really, really into a Mickey Mouse game, <laughs> which was fun. Um, it was our example of a children's game and like somebody was playing and they got very like mind meldy about like, wait, wait, no, try this, try this, do that. Um, which I think is something that is really, really great in a classroom space because it gets students talking to each other in a way that it doesn't otherwise. Yeah. Um, so it worked out, I think, pretty well. <laughs> it was fun for me. <laughs> okay, Kim, so we've reached that portion of the of the podcast where we have five quick hitting questions. Okay. So first thing that comes to the top of your head. Um, you're, admitted, you're an admitted Harry Potter fan, even though you said you didn't like teaching it. We're still going to say you're a fan. I so, enjoy teaching it. To clear, I enjoy teaching it. I just found the novels themselves okay. kind of hard to take. But the class was great. Okay, um, okay. I divided them into houses, and they had to compete for participation points, and that was really fun. Well, thank you for the clarification, <laughs> and that's exactly what the question goes into. Um, you're a Harry Potter fan, so what house would you oh, want to okay. go into and why? Um. So when we did the Harry Potter event, I had a student who said, Dr. Cox, you have a dark side. Don't lie. <laughs> like, I know you'd be in Slytherin, <laughs> which is great. Um, I think probably I would be in Ravenclaw if I was placed. Um, although she was right. Definitely do have a dark side. <laughs> uh, what was the first concert you attended? Oh, um, Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Oh, nice. Um, and that was actually on Long Island, and I was in my 20s. Um, so I was not a huge music person growing up, um, so I didn't do a lot of concerts, and so that was the first one. Yeah, that works. That's yeah. a cool one. So if Shattered State College wasn't the name, what would you name the college? <sighs> okay. Um, the Middle of Everywhere. Um, which is probably strange. Um, Mo. Everywhere I go, I meet someone who has either been in Shadron or is like from Shadron. It's Highway 20, man. It's yeah. so weird. Yeah. And it's not just me. I've had family members that have come to stay and then like go back home and they're like, ah, oh, I met this person from Shadron and like this little coffee shop like in the middle of our town. Or like I was traveling like in Oregon and met somebody who was like, oh, Shadron, I have family there. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting place that's technically probably middle of nowhere but is also somehow the middle of everywhere. Yeah. Okay. I like it. How many times have you been up to the top of Sea Hill? Oh, I do not know. Um, I guess it depends on what you mean by the top. Oh, the tip top. Well, at least up to the sea, let's say. Okay, never. <laughs> <laughs> 
I am not a hiker. Need to make that happen. <laughs> I probably do. I mean, it's year five. I should. Um, yeah, I've I've walked the lovely paths a number of times. That's close. That's I've, close. I've never quite climbed up to the top. Someday I will. Someday I'll get myself in gear. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kim. And last but not least, what is a favorite movie of yours? Oh, that's a good question. I have a hard time with favorites. Okay. Um, most recent favorite. Oh, okay. Probably, probably John Wick. Um, growing up, I had a like secret love of all things like eighties action. Um, and like the horrible 80s action movies as well um and they were always infuriating because you'd have like the sub boss that the main character would have to like fight before they get to the big boss and those fights were never just believable and i just appreciated john wick because the premise was so simple right (laughs) like dude kills this guy's puppy um and then it's just like mass mass revenge um <laughs> with like no hesitation and no thought um and also some really really good acting in different places um i did have some issues with gender in the movie but i feel like that's to be <laughs> expected but it was fun like i just had a fun time in the theater it's been a long time and that, <laughs> since nice. that's happened yeah. and it started the uh, keanu sans that so. it, that it did yeah. now we've got sequels and chapters yeah the second one wasn't as great um, but I feel like that's that's usually the case when you're dealing with sequels. Um, but yeah, I, I had a fun time with the original. But there was like four of us in the theater, so we had a lot of exciting conversation while watching the movie. Um, so, Well, great. Yeah. Well, that's it, Kim. We, we certainly appreciate you taking the time to visit with us today. And well, thanks thank for you. having me. <laughs>